Today provide you with in-depth news and expert analysis, tell you the whole story and the bigger picture, bring you the news you want to know only on Today. China and Panama agree to further promote ties. UN chief says climate change is the most important issue we're facing. Qatar is withdrawing from OPEC, and Sri Lankan Prime Minister Rajapaksha calls for election to solve political instability. You're listening to today, a news program with a different perspective. I am Sui. Coming up, we have an hour of world news and analysis. To hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching for World News Analysis. China and Panama have signed 19 cooperation agreements on trade, infrastructure, banking, tourism, and other areas. On Chinese President Xi Jinping's state visit to Panama, the first of its kind since the two countries opened diplomatic ties last year. During their talks on Monday, the two leaders spoke highly of the momentum of bilateral relations and cooperation results over the past one and a half year. President Xi said, "Facts have proven that will con- and will continue to prove that its establishment of diplomatic relations is an absolutely correct decision and will benefit the two peoples." He stressed that cementing and developing the China-Panama friendly relations is China's unwavering diplomatic principle, regardless of the changes in international situations. For more on this, join us on the line now is Wu Hongying, special assistant to the president of the China Institutes of Contemporary International Relations. So, Ms. Wu, we're seeing 19 agreements ranging from trade, infrastructure, banking, banking to tourism. It seems like cooperation between China and Panama are really in full swing, given the fact that the two countries have just established diplomatic ties for one and a half year. So, how can the two countries develop their cooperation in such a large scale? Do you think? Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, we see that Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit to Panama is a fruitful and very successful visit. Nineteen agreements have been signed, covering trade, infrastructure, finance, tourism, and many other fields. It shows that Chinese government. Pays more attention to the relations with Panama, and it also shows that there is a rapid development of the ties between China and Panama. Why does the China and Panama relations have development so rapidly? I think there's three reasons. First, the leading role of the national leaders of the two countries. Uh, the establishment of the diplomatic relations between China and Panama in July last year, I think it was a strategic decision made by the Chinese President Xi Jinping and Panama's President Barilla. Also, there is only one and and a half years since the establishment of the diplomatic relations between China and Panama. The two heads of state of two countries have exchanged their visits. Second, there are many economic complementaries between China and Panama. We see that China and Panama are in the process of the modernization. Both countries need to use their external resources and markets to development their national economies. I think Panama needs the Chinese market. Chinese investment and the Chinese engineering experience, and also China needs Panama's 
Convenient Transportation Network OSC Land and Air. Panama, we see that it is the logical financial aviation and shipping center in Latin America. So Panama could play a bridge in the transit station for Chinese products investment to Latin America. To say that I think there is a good base of the relations between China and the Panama. We see that since the establishment uh, of the last year, the two countries have signed 28 uh, cooperation agreement. If adding that the uh, today this uh, this visit uh, signs 19 agreement. A total of 47 agreement uh, were were signed. Mm-hmm. So that means this is very important sign to improve future cooperation in between China and the Panama. Mm-hmm. So beyond specific projects, uh, Panama is the first Latin American country to sign on to Beijing uh, the China proposed Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, the Panamanian officials say uh, their country's national logistics strategy 2030 is highly compatible with the Belt and Road Initiative. So how will Panama's 2030 like uh, logistic development dovetail China's Belt and Road Initiative, do you think? Yeah, uh, we say that Panama is the first Latin American country to sign the Belt and Road Initiative uh, with China. I think it is playing a reading role to the improve the cooperation between China and Latin America on the uh, co-constructive the Belt and Road Initiative. We see that until today, there is uh, 14 countries in Latin America yeah, has signed this similar agreement with China. Uh, I think uh, in future, um, the one bear, one road, where it is an uh, important uh, platform uh, for the cooperation between China uh, uh, and the Panama, between China and the Latin American countries. Um, we see that uh, there is um, Panama's development strategy uh, and uh, the Mm, Chinese mm, Belt and Road Initiative have uh, many uh, similar similar mm, common points uh, because they it is mm, stress stresses the development point such as the mm, infrastructure construction uh, stress the mm, policy exchanges and. Uh, mm, Put and aimed put to the trade cooperation and other um, encourage to the popular exchanges. So that I think in future, China and Panama uh, have greater uh, cooperation uh, in many in many fields such as the um, trade, investment, logistics. Uh, and the financial and the tourism and the, and the other many many fears. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think um, although um, Panama is a small country, China it is a big country. 
but we we see that um, there is the their cooperation between China and Panama. It is uh, it is uh, um, it is legal and uh, um, it is legal in the future uh, benefit. Uh, and the cooperation. Mm-hmm. So, talking about trade, the two countries have been in negotiations for a bilateral free trade agreement, an FTA agreement, and in fact, they just concluded the fourth round of negotiations last week, and the next round is scheduled for next January here in Beijing. So, what do we know? What are the latest developments on this issue? The FTA talks. We see that in recent years, FTI. Uh, become the important uh, uh, cooperation fields. Um, uh, China has uh, signed uh, FTA, FTA with uh, with Chile, with Peru, with Costa Rica. Maybe uh, Panama. It is the fourth country. Um, I think uh, um, uh, in future, um, I, uh, China and Panama step up the negotiation about the FTA. Mm, if the FTA uh, will be signed, I think uh, there is a mm, there is a great and important uh, impetus uh, driving force for the uh, for the future cooperation between China and the. Uh, mm-hmm. So beyond economic issues, Xi Jinping says China highly appreciates Panama's firm support on issues concerning China's major core interests, such as the Taiwan question. So how do you see the importance of the Taiwan question in this pair of bilateral ties between China and Panama? Um, we we see that uh, Panama um, established. Uh, Mm, the diplomatic relations with uh, with the Chinese mainland. Um, I think this is a very important strategic choice. Mm, after 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 uh, is is establishment of diplomatic relations with China and the other um, not the Americans um, follow it, such as the. Mm, the public of the Dominica uh, and the Salvador, yeah, mm, has established diplomatic relations. Uh, that shows that more and more Latin American countries pay more attention to the uh, bilateral relations with China. Uh, and then it shows they concern Chinese major uh, interests, yeah, in Latin America. Mm. Mm, so we we praise we praise the these uh, actions of the Latin American countries. Mm, it it shows that in future, mm, China has uh, has uh, more and more uh, big big um, friends circles, yeah, in Latin America. Mm. Thank you very much, Mr. Wu, for your time this evening. We've been talking with Wu Hongying, special assistant to the president of the China Institutes of Contemporary International Relations. Let's take a short break here. Coming up, UN chief says climate change is the most important issue we are facing today. You are listening to today. Stay with us. Join the most popular Chinese language learning page on Facebook by searching for CRI Learn Chinese. It's a quick yet fun way to achieve your language goals. 
Start your free lessons now with unlimited videos, photos, and text tutorials on expressions and Chinese culture. CRI Learn Chinese Facebook page. A world opens with 你好 Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is urging world leaders to consider the threat of climate change. Guterres made the call while addressing representatives of almost 200 nations gathered for the COP24 conference in Poland. The UN chief also wants a transformation of the global energy economy as he urges countries to cut their emissions by 45 percent from 2010 levels by the year of 2030. And by 2050, the goal is zero emissions. Now, join us now to talk about climate changes. Wu Changhua, China Asia Director at Office of German Rifkin.、Uh, so, Mr. Wu, apart from the serious warning we heard from the UN chief, media reporting say a renowned English broadcaster and natural historian, Sir David Attenborough, says if climate change continues to be ignored. We could face the collapse of our civilizations. So, what's your take on his argument? How do you see the general seriousness of the climate issue today? Sure, thank you.、Uh, I totally agree with Sir David's opinion, and、uh, the reason, the science behind his、uh, view is that、uh, we are pretty much、uh, disrupting all the major ecosystems already. There are nine Earth-like supporting systems. If you look around today, the assessment tells us. We pr- pretty much across nearly half of the、uh, systems already. Meaning, you know, we are crossing. The, we already cross the borders or boundaries actually of four ecosystems there already.、Uh, so his opinion has a very strong scientific background and the backup there as well. If you look at climate change and、uh, what is climate change? Climate change actually is literally disrupting、uh, the water cycle of the Earth's planetary system. And、uh, if you look at the temperature、uh, rise, and、uh, we all know by one degree Celsius the increase, and、uh, the atmosphere sucks up seven percent more、uh, water or humidity from the Earth, and bring that into the atmosphere. And then when temperature you know cools down, and it pours actually the the precipitation somewhere. That's why we're experiencing more and more extreme weather events. And also suffering more and more from the severity of those events.、Uh, so yes, I as I said, I totally agree with Sir David's opinion, and I know actually there is very strong scientific foundation to support that. I'm hoping somehow that sends a major or an alarm to the global community that it is time to accelerate actions to tackle climate change. The United Nations says global emissions slowed down between the year of 2014 and 2016, but rose again in 2017. So, what are the reasons behind CO2 emissions rising again last year?、Uh, because uh, you know uh, the fossil fuels actually, uh, uh, rather than continue to declining, but somehow in some parts of the world it started to come back more, and so we're consuming more fossil fuels, and、uh, that's the major reason. And I'm hoping that's temporary and、uh, short term, and、uh, you know very quickly the global community should get get back to the track towards renewable energy and really capturing the energy efficiency as as much as possible.、Uh, mostly because the cost of renewable energy continues to decline, and、uh, there's a very strong economic case, and it's affordable, and、uh, technology is pretty much mature, and、uh, we just need to be aware,、uh, you know, the sense of urgency. 
and really take immediate actions and deploy those technologies in order to you know, revert the sort of situation. Now we've seen high-profile statements about climate change and intensive media coverage of the COP summit in Poland. What do you expect this year's COP summit can actually deliver this time? Uh, if you look at the COP this year, I think the agenda uh, on the table is very clear. Uh, we had we already have Paris Agreement adopted uh, back in 2015. Uh, but if you look at, uh, you know, what is the Paris Agreement, it's pretty much countries coming together voluntarily, uh, putting their commitments on the table. Uh, on one side, it's a positive. It's positive in a way that countries are willing to commit and are willing to take actions. Uh, but there's the other side of the story. If you look at, actually, uh, the narratives, the terms, the timelines, what you know, how do they define their actions, whatever, uh, it's not consistent at all. Uh, that poses major challenge to the global process because we have no idea uh, whether the actions together, you know, whether they're delivered, whether they're going to, you know, con- how much they're going to contribute uh, to the solutions. Uh, so for this round of the COP, the COP24, and, uh, you know, adopting a rule, a rule book, and, or implementation rule book, uh, maybe they will call it the cultivated uh, rule, rule at the end of the day, at the end of the negotiation. Uh, which is going to be uh, clearly defining the shape of the Paris Agreement uh, implementation, uh, offering tools and the instruments for uh, assessment. Uh, very importantly, in this process, hopefully, uh, countries will be able to lift up uh, their level of ambitions and commitment so that the, the actions, uh, you know, in different parts of the world will add up, actually, to the level of challenges that need to be addressed. Uh, so I feel confident that the COP 2024 20, uh, will definitely deliver, uh, you know, uh, this outcome uh, as planned. In the meantime, there are some other issues, actually, COP 24 are also examining. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, in the past, actually, if you look at the international agreement, the process on climate change issues, of course, we have carbon emissions in different sectors, whatever. Today, actually, we we, we something we realize, uh, you know, buildings, transportation, uh, you know, power, industry, among all those different economic sectors, actually, the energy issue, there is a commonality, you know, the energy issue and the carbon issue there. If we could adopt something like integrated design, uh, rather than treating issues actually totally by different sectors, we pull everything together, I think that would potentially deliver major impact. And another issue, actually, is about, you know, a better understanding of the role of the forestry and also soil in terms of the carbon sink. Uh, I think that's going to be pretty much discussed as well. Uh, at the end of the day, I think finance is another major piece of the puzzle. Uh, you know, we, 2020 is around the corner. And uh, back in 2009, international community, the community is committed to that developed countries who will commit up to 100 billion U.S. dollars annually uh, to support the developing countries by 2020. Uh, we really need to understand where we are, uh, where's that sort of commitment, uh, what is the gap, and how to address that. So in a nutshell, I think all those key elements are very well understood by different parties, and all those issues will be discussed intensively uh, in Poland at the uh, COP24. Hmm. So more about the finance issue, you mentioned this another piece of puzzle. Uh, are we like, do we have enough pledges from industrialized countries? Like, uh, are the pledges enough at all? Or do they have enough political will to fulfill their commitments? 
Uh, no, unfortunately, I think that that remains a big challenge. Uh, so on paper, there is commitment from developed countries, industrialized countries to de- developing countries. Uh, in reality, we know there is a big gap. And uh, in that context, actually, U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Agreement probably add another blow to the international fin- climate finance process. I don't think we, the global community has found the answer yet. That's why it's very urgently important uh, for the parties actually to have a serious discussion about the finance issue. Uh, in reality, I think that, you know, for the international process, we're talking about you know, you know, support from developed countries to developing countries. Uh, that's, that's limited. Even though it's $100 million billion annually, it's limited because we know we put that in the context of the climate change challenge globally. Uh, that's very limited. More importantly, actually, I think this is back to the whole package of the Paris Agreement, is that uh, when policies, incentives, regulations need to be put together, price on carbon needs to be put in place to be implemented so that we literally transform or incentive transformation, actually, uh, of our economy, our energy uh, uh, structure, our, you know, how we grow our you know, infrastructure, how we develop our industries, uh, how we develop our products and the services there. Uh, so besides the aid, you know, financial support element, I think more fundamentally uh, that those are the places actually the finance needs to be more focused on because that's literally, you know, fundamentally transforming how we grow our economy differently so that we'll be able to fundamentally address the climate change challenge globally. Hmm. Now let's talk about the United States. Uh, the U.S. government says they will phase out government subsidies to electric cars. And earlier, like we just talked about, President Trump rejected a climate report compiled by his own government. So how do we understand the rationale behind the current U.S. administration's attitude towards climate change? There, there are different angles to look at. You know, at the federal level, it's, on the political level, it's very unfortunate to have a Trump sitting in the White House who is totally denying climate change uh, from a science perspective. Uh, you know, and the, the, I think the, the rationale behind it actually is now much better understood in a way. Uh, basically, saying in the U.S., uh, you know, there's the immediate cost actually to, for U.S. to take more aggressive actions. Uh, the reasoning for them, the attitude for them, basically say, look, no matter what we do, actually, and uh, you know, even though we, we definitely we can take a, uh, efforts to reduce certain amounts of emissions, but then if you look at China, India, other large developing countries, if you look at their the growth of the emissions, uh, you know, on an annual basis, you know, it's pretty much it's nothing. You know, it doesn't really count much. Uh, fundamentally, it's a cost, it's competitiveness issue. I think it's a concern about jobs about the growth opportunities there, about the cost to enterprises, companies today, particularly incumbent industries there. Um, but to be fair to the U.S., uh, if you look at the subnational government level and uh, at the state level, at the city level, uh, there are many states and the cities that actually are taking action. And uh, then if you look at a lot of companies, uh, technology companies, large industrial companies, uh, of course, there are resistance, uh, uh, like, you know, uh, some companies, but more and more companies are coming together, setting up their efforts to address climate change issues there already. Uh, so U.S. is a perplexed situation. As I said, unfortunately, at the political side, it's uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, not doing anything and even going the other way. Uh, but in reality, and uh, uh, there are many players still, uh, you know, taking very aggressive efforts 
and not only themselves, but also bring others together in order to accelerate their solutions there. So that's the situation of the U.S. Thank you very much, Ms. Wu, for your time this evening. We've been talking with Wu Changhua, China Asia Director with Office of Jeremy Rifkin. Meantime, COP24 President Mikhail Kurtika has urged the United Nations Climate Conference to deliver, saying there's no plan B to global warming. Dear colleagues, during the next two weeks, we will all have to show creatively and creativity and flexibility to use the time available wisely and deliver the results that we all are aiming for. I urge you all to make every effort to maximize the meeting time available for discussions on substantive items. It's been three years since the landmark Paris deal that set a goal of keeping global warming below two degrees Celsius. Envoys from nearly 200 nations have converged for the UN meeting scheduled to run until December 14th. Coming up, Qatar is now withdrawing from OPEC. Sri Lankan Prime Minister Rajapaksha calls for election to solve political instability. So far this hour, China and Panama have agreed to further promote their bilateral relationship. UN chief says climate change is the most important issue we are facing today. To hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching for World News Analysis. You'll be listening to today. I'm Sweet. Stay with us. You're listening to today. I'm Sui. Time for our daily global survey, where we take a quick look at what's happening around the world. Joining me in the studio is my colleague Wu. Thank you, Sui, for Seven Asia. China's Tencent Music launches an initial public offering on the New York Stock Exchange, valued at 1.2 billion U.S. dollars. In India, three men are being held related to the murder of a police officer. In Oceania, the convictions of some of Australia's most high-profile criminals are in doubt, after a lawyer is said to have worked as a police informant. Staying in the country, the brother of cricket star Usman Kawaja is in jail, accused of framing a man for authoring a fake terrorism hit list. Moving on to Africa. A British woman kidnapped by Somali pirates says she believes the man convicted in the connection with the case is innocent. A photographer is awarded for her portraits of survivors of the Luanda genocide. Turning to the Middle East, the head of the CIA will brief Congress on the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Gold coins believed to have been hidden for about 900 years are found by archaeologists exploring the Israeli city of Caesarea. Looking to Europe, the French government will suspend a few tax increases that has led to weeks of violent Yellow West protests. Icelanders are calling on members of the parliament to resign after they were recorded mocking women colleagues and a disabled activist. Looking to Latin America, Uruguay rejects a request for asylum by Peru's former president Alan Garcia. Mexican President Andre Obrador will launch a commission to investigate the 2014 disappearance of 43 students. And finally, in North America, investigators are looking at a potential connection between a body found near an Airbnb in Costa Rica and the Florida woman who stayed there before disappearing last week. Geologists say they have discovered a massive unexplored cave of national significance in Canada. Thanks, Will. That winds up today's global survey. 
Qatar is quitting the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, in January, announcing its withdrawal from the cartel just days before the group's meeting in Vienna. The country has been a member of OPEC for 57 years and will now focus on cementing its position as the world's biggest exporter of liquefied natural gas. Global financial analyst Peter Dixon of the Commerce Bank says Doha's decision doesn't have much effect on OPEC's influence over the oil market. You know, I, I don't think it makes a big difference. Certainly, with regards to crude, you know, Qatar is a very small player in this game, and、um, I, I think we can only look at their decision to leave OPEC、uh, as some form of、uh, you know, symbolic gesture. Quite what they're trying to tell us、uh, at this stage, I'm not entirely sure. OPEC members are expected to cut oil supply at the meeting in Vienna. Minister of State for Energy Affairs Saad Al Kabi said Qatar would still attend the group's meeting on Thursday and Friday, adding that the decision to exit OPEC was not political. I think Qatar has been under you know great pressure from some of its、uh, neighbors in the Gulf for for some time now, so it is slightly surprising that it's pulling out、uh, and then claiming it's not a political issue. It, it strikes me it can only be that. OPEC members Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates and fellow Arab states Bahrain and Egypt have imposed a political and economic boycott on Qatar since June 2017. They accuse Qatar of supporting terrorism, a charge denied by Doha. Now we have Saad Jawad, professor of the London School of Economics and Political Science, a senior fellow with the Middle East Center. So, Professor Jawad, why do you think Qatar want to quit OPEC at a At this moment, because we heard Qatar's energy minister say the move is not political; they are just trying to focus more on natural gas. Well, he could say what he wants to say, but it, this this move is par excellence a political move、mm-hmm. because、uh, it shows that Qatar wants to give an example to the other. Uh, Gulf countries that they are not going to stay under their sanctions and under their hammer for a long time, and this move, by the way, could lead them. If they take a, a daring move to, of, of of leaving OPEC, then they could take another daring move of moving,、uh, leaving the、uh, Gulf Council, Gulf Community Council (GSC). So I think it's a political move, and it's.、Uh, Very dangerous indication to the unity of the Gulf countries. As a major oil exporter, which leads the alliance, isolating Qatar, what might Saudi Arabia think about this? Are there any major geopolitical consequences we're going to see? Well, I think Saudi Arabia is a little bit worried about this move because although Qatar is not that. Big member of the OPEC, I mean, big exporter of oil、uh, in this in this organization, but in this organization, sorry, but it could lead to other countries leaving this uh, this this uh, organization like Iran, and this could weaken even more OPEC, especially when they feel that the the decision is. And decisions in OPEC are dominated by Saudi Arabia and by uh, 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 indirectly by the United States. 
Now it's been argued、uh, the move by Qatar doesn't have much effect on OPEC's influence, but still, this country has been a member of OPEC for 57 years. So, what could be the implication of this move on OPEC and also the general world oil market? As I said, it will not affect the general oil market because the share Qatar has in this in this production plan is not that big. But as I said, it could lead to other uh, uh, countries to leave the, the the organization. This happened in 2008 when Indonesia、uh, Indonesia left the OPEC organization, although it came back to to the organization again. But it could lead to something like that, and this could uh, uh, I mean this could endanger the unity of the OPEC organization. Also, there are ten. Non-members, I mean, producing oil countries are non are non-members of、uh, of OPEC who are cooperating with OPEC. When they see such a move, maybe they decide not to cooperate anymore with any reduction of oil uh, and uh, and any uh, plan this,、uh, announced by OPEC. Mm-hmm. And, and now, what about the United States? We know the United States is now the world's largest oil producer. How do you see、uh, the U.S. element behind this issue, and also、uh, the future of OPEC? Well, I should think the United States is very happy to see this dispute and this frictions happening in OPEC because、uh, in the United States, all along, did not like OPEC and did not like the work of OPEC, and they wanted. To weaken OPEC, so I think such a move taken by Qatar would make the United States happy because this will endanger or, or at least put an end to the unity of the OPEC countries. And OPEC members will have their official meeting this Thursday and Friday. What should we look at from this meeting? I think they will try to belittle the, the Qatarian move. They will try to. Make Qatar change their、uh, its mind, and or the leaders of Qatar change their mind and return to OPEC. They would、uh, they would announce that such a move would not endanger or affect the unity of of of, of OPEC. All these propaganda issues will be used, but I think they will try very hard to keep the unity of Qatar、uh, of the of the organization and try to bring Qatar back to the to, to OPEC. And a bigger issue is that、uh, Qatar says it's trying, like, to focus on natural gas or, or away from oil.、And、Saudi Arabia says it believes its future must be diversified rather than solely relying on oil. So, do we have a clearer picture of the energy diversification plan in the Middle East? These plans have been going have been going on for a long time, but unfortunately, we haven't seen any diversification of energy plans in the Middle East.、It's、depending on oil was the main thing, and the main issue only Qatar、uh, is depending also on gas uh, uh, exports. So I don't think the 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 the, 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 the government of the Middle East or of the Gulf countries have. A clear plan of on how to diversify because they don't have only they only have oil and uh, and uh, gas. So I don't know what they could do something. How could they do something else about these two issues? Thank you very much, Professor Jawad. As always, 
We've been talking with Saad Jawad, professor of the London School of Economics and Political Science, a senior fellow with the Middle East Center. Also in this region, the Israeli military has issued verbal warnings to Lebanon-based Hezbollah, telling its members to stay away from suspected tunnels into Israeli territory that Israeli forces are now moving to destroy. The warning comes just hours after the IDF launched a major campaign, including bulldozers and ground forces, to destroy known terminals which run from Lebanon into Israel. Israeli forces suggest the destroying of the tunnels is just the first step of Operation Northern Shield. The Israeli side says its northern forces are on heightened alert, but that no additional troops have been activated. Israel and Hezbollah fought a month-long war in 2006 that ended in a ceasefire. Coming up, Sri Lanka Prime Minister Rajapaksha calls for election to solve political instability. You are listening to today. I'm Sui. We'll be back in a minute. Hi, this is Einar Tangen. The Today Show brings expert local and international perspectives on China's economic and business issues. Having been in law, government, and finance in the United States, I find China's economic and political evolution fascinating, and hope you do also. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to today. A Sri Lanka court is ordering Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksha and his cabinet members to refrain from carrying out their duties. Rajapaksha says he does not accept an interim order. The disputed prime minister is moving to file an appeal with the Supreme Court. Sri Lanka has been in a political crisis since late October, when President Mathripala Srisina sacked Prime Minister Ranil Ramakrishna and appointed Rajapaksha to the position. Around half of the parliament members have challenged the right of Rajapaksha to hold office. The parliamentary speaker announced his government was dissolved after Rajapaksha lost two no-confidence votes last month. However, he has held on to the position. So, with more on the situation in Sri Lanka, we are joined on the line by Wang Dehua, director of South Asian and Central Asian Studies at the Shanghai Municipal Center for International Studies. So, good evening, Mr. Wang. How do you look at the latest development in Sri Lanka, a country without a government so far? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Now, Sri Lanka has reached the level without a government, although there are so-called two prime ministers. And very in chaos. As President Sirisena、uh, said during his interview with the Lanka Today, who says so? The country is not in anarchy. There is no instability. Day-to-day life of the people has not been affected. They engage in their jobs and business like any other days. There are no conflicts and disputes take place. In the country, and the day-to-day services are continue as usual. All I have to say is, this allegation is mere political words and jabbering. Right. So, could you tell us more about the story behind this、uh, political situation? We heard President Sirisena say he would not reappoint Richard Ramachandran, even though all parliament members signed a petition to do so. So, why does the president so much dislike、uh, the former prime minister, and also why do so many lawmakers dislike Rajapaksha being the、uh, prime minister?、Uh, I think.、Uh 
on the twenty sixth October this year, Mahindra Lapakshpashka, leader of the Sri Lanka um, Pudujena Aparenuma, was appointed by the Metra Sirisina as the prime minister because of uh, he had divergent views over whether to render Western continent turmoil in Colombo merely for power with the weaker Sinha. So President uh, asked the journalist to say that, are they telling me that I should have any weaker Sinha destroy this country and have been ignorant and not committed to what he was doing? Are they telling me that I should turn a blind eye to all the corrupt and the deceitful acts and take no choice of the betrayals? All I did was to put an end of all that. How can do anything in terms of this? So uh, he said, also, I don't think uh, it was a secret to the media or the majority of the public. There were clashes between the, uh, the cabinet of the minister and also between myself and uh, Wickerim Singha. And there were also many irregularities took place in the past three years. So I think uh, he recently also said uh, that there is uh, the also cynical scheme of the assassination of him and like this. So now we see uh, there is a ruling by the Court of Appeal. Uh, the, the, the ruling is an interim order. Uh, Raja Paksha is being summoned to explain on what basis he could continue to hold on to power. Uh, but in the meantime, President Sirisena attempted to dissolve the parliament and called snap elections. But this move is being temporarily blocked by the Supreme Court, a very complicated political situation. So this, the whole situation seems to be a deadlock. Where could be uh, the way out, do you think? <laughs> I could hardly to predict the prospect of the uh, way out of the Sri Lanka, the political future. But the president, Sirisina, uh, in an interview with uh, Ceylon Today, admitted that an immediate general election is the only way out to settle the prevailing political crisis if things are not resolved by 31 December this year. And on the 3rd December uh, 2018, a court issued an interim order preventing Mohindra Raja Praksha from functioning in the position, fulfill the duty and responsibility with commitment uh, the president orders all services and uh, he order, or, or let them um, uh, also uh, to see the most of the cabinet members and who appointed and uh, perhaps there would appeal to the court and so on. So I think uh, 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 whether there is uh, Sri Lanka's long-standing ethnic conflict and fragile peace process continue to cause the enormous concern by the uh, international, especially the community, especially by the United States. So I worry about the international factors. Uh, the uh, the U.S. and the Europeans and so on, they are very 
very hard. They are deeply worried about the decision of Sri Lankan president to dissolve the parliament. So I, of course, I see the India quite low profile at uh, this time. So they perhaps they want to keep the, the, the not uh, let the people say the pro India or pro China like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. So, uh, last question talking about its impact.、Uh, international rating agency Fitch has just downgraded Sri Lanka's long-term debt rating. So, things like this, what sort of impacts could the political crisis bring to the Sri Lankan economy and also society? Do you think? I think, in my personal opinion, it is only one score of biased view of the credit、uh, credit rating firms. I found the Sri Lankan economy is quite good. Of course, not to reach the target of the、um, president of eight percent and like this. But、uh, I found that、uh, recently Sri Lanka rupees is appreciating, and also there is no、uh, problem that occurred in relating to the security. I think、uh, the So I think、uh, the army chief just、uh, announced that uh, uh, recent uh, some cases is, is only the rare case. So, so I think whether the the rating of the the future、uh, firm is is correct, I I, I just wait and see.、Mm. Thank you very much, Mr. Wang, for joining our program this evening. We've been talking with Mr. Wang Dehua, Director of South Asian and Central Asian Studies at the Shanghai Municipal Center for International Studies. Let's take a short break here. Coming back for more lighter news stories we've been following. You're listening to today. Stay with us. China Plus. Cri. Cn is your home for everything you want to know about China. The latest news in China and everything China-related from around the world. Everything in focus, all in one place. Bringing you vital information for your business and travel, Chinese culture, language learning, and more. China Plus. Cri. Cn. China Plus. Cri. Cn. Your portal into today's Middle Kingdom. Welcome back. Join me for the other news segment. Is Patrick Flannery. Well, today we're looking at how world leaders are fighting to prove that they're still alive, and how a seven-year-old boy has taken over YouTube and become richer than most of us will ever be. First, the president of Nigeria is battling a rumor that he's dead. Many online and even one government minister are perpetuating the claim that Muhammadu Buhari was replaced by a lookalike from Sudan, or an even wilder theory, he's been cloned. The president has been in poor health for years, and the death rumor is not new. But what is new is how the theory has proliferated on social media, and how government officials have now、uh, been keeping this going. So, how do we know whether the man we see in pictures is indeed the Nigerian president? <laughs> yeah, how, how do we ever know, right?、Uh, but、uh, people online have have speculated, comparing photos、uh, of Buhari with and without his glasses.、Uh, some believed at one time that the photos showing him signing a document、uh, he was using opposite hands.、Uh, but what what really kind of、uh, got this rolling was、uh, an aide to former President Jonathan Goodluck has been pushing the theory. And、uh, the global news agency AFP—they're、uh, fact checkers. They work with Facebook as well to kind of spot fake news. They found no evidence to support that Buhari has either been replaced 
or cloned.、Mm-hmm. We we heard media stories say Buhari went to London several times to、uh, right. see a doctor. How is the current president's health? He says he's fine.、Um, he's seventy five years old. By no means is that old,、uh, but、uh, he's been hospitalized、uh, for a period of three months,、uh, not too long ago. Um, he never has revealed what what the illness is,、uh, but he insists he's very much alive and、uh, is seeking re-election in February. Right. So, is this the only world leader confronting a death rumor? No.、Uh, Ali Bongo, the president of Gabon,、uh, has had to dispel a similar rumor after not being seen in about six weeks,、uh, but he was being treated for a stroke.、Mm-hmm. And the South China Morning Post reported that the death rumor has been chasing former Zimbabwe president Robert Mugabe for about ten years. And then、uh, Kim Jong Un was rumored to have been assassinated several years ago, and finally, even Vladimir Putin vanished for two weeks and、uh, fueled speculation that maybe he was gone. Right. So lots of、uh, information. He, he's we, still we here. Can confirm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right.、Yes. That's more on to our next story. Well, the richest and most followed YouTube star in the world is a seven-year-old boy from the United States. Four years after he began hosting a family-produced show called Ryan Toys Review. That's where he unboxes toys. He gives commentary on the contents, and he makes twenty-two million dollars a year doing it. So, twenty-two、uh, million dollars. How is this young man making so much money? Well, he's got seventeen million followers on YouTube, and、uh, by far the most views of anyone in the world. It's in the multi-billions. Forbes magazine reports that this child gets one million dollars from sponsored posts. The other twenty million dollars are coming from those ads. You'll go to something,、uh, you'll click play on a video, and for a few seconds you'll see an ad. That's called pre-roll advertising. That's where the majority of his money is coming from. He's going to make a lot more though very soon. He's already set up deals with Amazon and Hulu to carry his videos, and inked a toy and clothing deal with Walmart. So what's this about unboxing toys that children find appealing to watch? It's something about that feeling. It's almost virtual reality. You're watching someone unbox this fresh package of、mm-hmm. brand new toys, and it's almost like you're there experiencing your, yourself.、Right. My son has watched this. He's three. So I, it, th- <laughs> this is a real phenomenon.、Uh, I, I still don't really、uh, see the joy in it, but、uh, a lot of people, especially children.、Um, Really love it, and YouTube has learned to monetize that. So I, I see similar like a YouTube video, like people unboxing iPhone, new the latest iPhone. Exactly, exciting experience. Very much so for、believe. adults as well. Yeah,、right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so does the boy's channel translate to people buying the toys he he reviews? Yeah,、uh, the tech site The Verge did a report on him、uh, not too long ago, and as they put it, it's subliminal advertising at its finest because what you've got is more and more YouTube stars driving retail. By essentially running a long advertisement, but in a completely different way,、uh, and that's evident from the partnerships with the WalMarts and the Hulus of the world. And does the boy Ryan appreciate his fortune fame? <laughs> he is a very good-natured kid. He is only seven, so. At this point, he probably thinks he's the biggest guy on earth, and he kind of isn't, as far as YouTube is concerned. But there's something a little unsettling about the marketing of a child when we're talking about consumerism.、Mm. So every day, it's moved from "Hey, let me unbox these toys" to now he's getting his haircut, he's brushing his teeth, and his、uh, mom and dad are documenting this and also、mm. putting that out on YouTube. So、um, it's going to be a long,、uh, a long life、uh, living、right. in the world of YouTube for for this little guy, I believe. Thanks, Patrick. Sure. That's all the time we have for this edition of today. A quick recap: China and Panama have agreed to further promote their relations. UN chief says climate change is the most important issue we are facing. Qatar is withdrawing from OPEC, and Sri Lankan Prime Minister Rajapaksha calls for election to solve political instability. Listen to this episode again, or catch up on previous episodes. You can download our podcast by searching for World News Analysis. The program engineer of this episode is Yamin. I'm Sui. Thanks for listening. <laughs>